be reading from Ephesians 1, verses 18 through 23 today. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and in His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Well, good morning. It's good to see some women and men out there with so many women up at the women's retreat this weekend. Up in, uh, Usually, you know, the men decide, my wife isn't here, I'm going to go play in the mountains or go kill some meat for food. But uh, it's great to see all of you here. Many of us have had the experience of applying for a job. And you apply, maybe you go through the interview process, and then you wait to see if you've been chosen. That can be pretty nerve-wracking. And then when you finally get chosen, it's delightful, it's exciting. Yes, I got the job. But then you realize, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to have to learn how to do this new job. (laughs) I know when I was applying to come here to work at Cole 17 and a half years ago, I came and uh, had an interview. I was staying at the Roper's house and After the interview, I thought, there's no way they're going to choose me. But they did. They chose me to come, which was exciting, and I was thrilled to be able to come to Cole to be on the pastoral staff and do the study center, be the director of our study center, our in-house seminary program. But it was a steep learning curve. I hadn't taught those kinds of classes. I hadn't directed a program like that, and so I had to jump in, and there was a lot I had to know to make it happen. I came on staff in August, and by mid-September, I was teaching three classes, directing the study center, working with 15 interns, and uh, I had to learn really fast what my job was all about. Like most jobs, unless it's something exactly like you've done before, when you get hired, you need to learn the ropes. You've got to learn what this new job entails. So training is important, and you need to figure out what you need to know to do this job. Well, it's like Paul in Ephesians. He wants those that he's writing to in Ephesus and in the surrounding churches to know certain things. He's been talking about all the things God has done to choose us. We're His. We've been chosen to be part of the kingdom of God, but to really live well in that job so to speak, in that calling he's given us, there are certain things we need to know. We have to know them to be able to live as this new humanity, this church, this restored people that he's called us into. 
There are certain things we must know. And why is knowing so important? Because knowing precedes doing, right? You've got to know certain things and believe them and truly believe them if you are going to live a certain way. Paul makes this really clear in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be squeezed into the mold of the world, Christians. Don't live like the world around you. But instead, be transformed, he says. Live differently. Be transformed. Be changed from what you were, what the world does, into what God wants you to be. He says, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. You see, our thinking has to change. We have to know certain things and really know them so that we can begin to live as the people of God that he's called us to be. Of course, that's why we need to know the word. That's why we need to study it. That's why we need to let it impact us. So how do we live in this new realm, these spiritual blessings that Paul's been talking about back in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 3, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Hallelujah. That's awesome. Now, how do I live there? How do I live in this new realm? Well, last week we saw, as Paul prays at the end of chapter 1, he says, first of all, if you want to live in those spiritual blessings, you have to stay connected to Jesus. You have to stay connected. You have to be a person who's learning to pray and be constantly logged on to Him, staying close to Him. And this week, in the last part of his prayer of chapter 1, we see three things he says you have to know if you are going to live in this new job, this new calling, this new humanity, this thing called church, his church, the people of God. But a reminder, we need to know these things not just in our heads, right, but in our hearts. As I said last week, one of the longest journeys most of us ever have to make is the 12 inches from our head to our hearts so it can be real in our lives. And so what Paul does in this last section, these things he wants us to know to have our lives changed and transformed, is he prays. He prays because he knows really the only way to get it from our head to our hearts is by God's work in us. So he prays that these things they know would be known on a heart level, that God would make them known to them on a deep heart level. So I think it's appropriate that we pray as we begin to dig into this passage. So let's pray. Lord, deep down we do want to be your people. But we do find it hard to really live for you. We find ourselves being conformed to the world in so many ways. So we plead with you today to help us understand this passage, to understand the things that we need to know. But we pray most of all that you would cause the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, that we might know them on a heart level, that they might change us, that we might be transformed. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Three things you need to know when you come into a new job certainly is, number one, your job description. What's, what am I supposed to do? What's my task here? What am I called into? Also, you need to know the goals of the company or your goals in your job. What am I trying to produce? What's, what am I here for? What's the end of all this? And third, you need to know what resources you have available to you to carry out your job. Well, those line up very well with the three things that Paul says, here's what you need to know. First thing he says you need to know is you need to know the hope of your calling. Notice how he begins in this part of the prayer, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know certain things, three things. What a wonderful picture, eyes of your heart. They've done a lot of studies on the heart. They've never discovered eyes. Paul's being figurative here, but what a powerful figure it is. This idea that your heart might see, might be enlightened, that the light might shine so that deep in your soul, deep in the center of your being, you might really understand. The heart, in Paul's thinking, is the center of your being. What really drives you? What controls you? What causes you to live the way you do? Not just in your head, but in your heart. It's kind of like the police dispatch, you know, the center where they tell everybody where to go. Yeah, there's, there's an emergency at this address. Go there and go there and go there. That's your heart. It's, it's your central dispatch. It's what tells everything else what to do. And so we need to know things on a heart level. All of us probably in this room know, well, we should eat low fat, right? We should eat low fat, okay? But it's easy to ignore. We know that, but it's probably not a reality for a lot of us until you have a heart attack. All of a sudden, it's a matter of life or death. You know you should eat low fat on a heart level then. <laughs> you see, it's become central to your life. And Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that God would turn the light on internally. God would shine the light inside in your understanding so you may know certain things. So you may know them. And it's just a reminder to us, we need to be in the Word, right? But all the study in the world, all the brilliant intellectual understanding in the world won't move truth into our hearts. It won't. Only God, by the power of His Spirit, can do that. So Paul prays. And we should pray, God, enlighten my heart. God, enlighten me as I dig into Your Word. Help me understand it in a way that's life-changing. So he says, here's first what you need to know, the hope of your calling. What does he mean? What's he talking about? The hope of your calling. Well, biblical hope, the word hope, when the Bible uses it, is not like the way we use hope typically. We use hope, you know, I hope, uh, I hope we have good snow this winter for skiing. Well, that's wishful thinking, you know, that's, it may or may not happen, we don't know, but, you know, I kind of hope that happens, especially if you're a skier, that's great. But there's no guarantee, 
But biblical hope is very different. Biblical hope is more like, boy, I really hope the sun comes up tomorrow because it would be nice to have daylight, you know, while I'm going about my day. Well, it is going to, unless the Lord returns in between, and, you know, that may happen, but you can count on the sun coming up tomorrow. Absolutely, and you can plan for it, and you can live accordingly. That's biblical hope. It's a sure confidence, an absolute assurance that allows you to face whatever comes your way with that confidence. So he says, I want you to know deep down in your hearts, I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened so you may know the hope of your calling, the sure confidence of your calling. What is our calling? Our calling is that we've been called out of darkness, Peter says, into his glorious light. That we've been given a new job, a job description, okay? We've been called out of darkness, out of the old life, out of the life that the world lives, into a relationship with God who loves us. We're on his side. He cares for us. There's so, much, so many passages I looked up about calling, and let me highlight just a few. Paul talks about it over in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He goes on to say, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. We'll get to that, chapter 4. But notice what he says our calling is. It's essentially to live out the life of Christ. Humility, gentleness, tolerance, love, care, unity. Our calling is to be the body of Christ, to live as his people in a broken and fallen world. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 says, For you were called to what? To freedom, brethren. (laughs) Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We're called from freedom to freedom, not to live by pressure and rules and regulations. We're free in Christ. But he says, use that freedom to love one another. We're called out of our old life into a new life, into God's life, into his story. God is working in history to set people free, to restore lives to him, to restore a broken world and a broken humanity to him and a broken creation to him. And so Paul says, man, I wish you'd know the hope of your calling that you have absolutely for sure been called to be something new and wonderful, this new creation. And part of it, let me make very clear to you because we don't want to be surprised. First Peter 2, Peter puts it this way, verse 20 and 21. He says, um, For what credit is it when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this very purpose. Okay, what's our purpose? Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Do you realize a big part of your calling and my calling is a calling to walk in Jesus' steps in suffering. That is part of our calling. And Paul says, I want you to know the hope of your calling. 
that somehow in that mystery of suffering, when we follow Jesus, that his life is released in us. And every one of us who are called into Christ Jesus are called to that. We've been given a new job, a new job description, a new mission in life. No longer is our mission in life to do whatever we can to find whatever happiness we can until life ends. To do whatever we can to find whatever happiness we can until life ends. You see, that's what our world lives for. That's the old life. And too many of us as Christians still follow the old job description. And what Paul is saying, that's no longer your job description. You've been called into something totally new. Something glorious. Something wonderful. To be part of the kingdom of God. Our new life is to follow Jesus wherever he leads and to be part of restoring a broken world to its creator and its lover. What a calling that is. and What hope that provides and assurance in our lives. That's our job description. Paul says, I want you to know this deep in your hearts. You're called. You're called. Secondly, we need to know the goal of all of this. Where is this headed? Where am I going with this? Because if I'm going to suffer and live this out, I need to know where we're going. He says, secondly, what you need to know is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Verse 18. He wants us to know the riches, the glory, his inheritance. What is Paul really saying here? Well, kind of what I picture is a a young man standing with his father, looking over their farm, beautiful farm, land, and the dad said, yeah, I'm going to retire pretty soon. This is going to be yours. This is going to be your inheritance someday. And the son's thinking, wow, this is awesome. This is great. But notice what it says. It says, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Who are the saints? Us. A saint is anyone who's put their faith in Christ. You've received the Holy Spirit. The word saint simply means one who is set apart to be holy. If you've got the Holy Spirit, you've been set apart for God's purposes. You're no, no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. You are officially a saint. Welcome to sainthood, every one of you who knows Jesus. Okay? But what it says is we are God's inheritance. It's not talking about so much our inheritance. It's talking about we being his inheritance. So God looks over us and says, man, I can't wait for that day. The riches, the glory of the saints. I know we don't feel very glorious, but I think what he's talking about is that God looks at us and he says, man, I am so excited about my inheritance as these people who are learning to walk with me in a broken and fallen world and trust me, they're becoming more and more like my son Jesus. And I can't wait for that day when I see the saints standing before me, the redeemed humanity, He said, that is going to be glorious. Talk about riches. That's what the Father looks forward to. We are his inheritance. 
that's mind-boggling to me, that that's what he's excited about. That's what he's pouring his life into. That ultimately is the goal. It's us becoming like him. So the inheritance is that we are being made Christ-like through the journey of life as we learn to walk with him and trust him. We are learning to more and more reflect him as we learn to let his life live through us. And Paul says, man, I pray that they would know this. I pray that you'd know this deep in your hearts, that that's the goal, that's the purpose of why you're here to, as he said earlier, be to the praise of his glory, that he might be made known, that he might be revealed. So Paul wants us to know deep inside in our hearts that God delights in us, that he's working everything all things for good to those who love him. And what is the good? It's to help us become like Christ. So God's saying, wow, what an awesome inheritance. I can't wait. (laughs) I can't wait. If we truly know this, then we'll live for that purpose, right? We'll be, we won't live just to be happy here. In fact, we'll see suffering in many many times as a gift because it's what changes us and helps us become like him. And Paul says, I want him to know this because he wants us to long for that. I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it in Weight of Glory, where he says, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. We have the opportunity to be his inheritance, to become more and more like Christ. That is the goal. And Paul says, I want you to know it deep on a heart level. Third, what he wants us to know is in verse 19, number three, And here's what I want you to know. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you'll know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are the resources we have for doing the job, for living this out, for living as his people. What do you think of when you think of power? Surpassing greatness of power. What do you think of? Well, most of us get a power bill, right? Electricity. So often we think of that. We have a game around our house called Lightning Reaction. It's a game in which you have four of these you hold, and if you're the last one to push the button on top, when uh, the light goes off, you get an electric shock. (laughs) It's a terrible game. Most people hate it. (laughs) There are AAA batteries in there. There's power in that. AAA battery power. It gives you a little shock. doesn't hurt you. It's not that fun. (laughs) Why they call it a game, I don't know. but... But there is power there. Compare that, though, to an acquaintance of mine who was working as an electrician and he was working two stories up on a scaffolding 
on some power, hooking up some power equipment. The scaffolding slipped. He instinctively, without thinking of it, reached out and grabbed with both hands the power line right above him that had thousands of volts. It blew him back off the scaffolding. He fell two stories, landed on both his knees, shattered both his knees, was badly burnt. Long, long recovery. There's a bit of a difference between AAA battery power and thousands of volts of power. How does Paul view God's power towards us? He says, I want you to know the surpassing greatness of the power. And most of us, I think, in our Christian life think power. Maybe I experienced AAA battery power in my life from God, but where is God's power really evident in my life? I, I want more power. Well, notice what Paul says. He wants us to know something about the power that God has directed towards us, toward us who believe. He says, by the way, it's in accordance with the work, working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. By the way, the power I'm talking about, it's not AAA. It's resurrection power. I want you to know that God's power that's directed to you is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father. That is resurrection power. That's power that overcomes sin and death. And Paul says, I want you to know how powerful God's power, strength, might, he just keeps building these words, how, they, how powerful they are towards you. I like the way Ray Stedman puts it. He says, this is resurrection power. That means it's different. It's not like any other power. It isn't the power of a strong personality or an educated mind or of a good family background or money, numbers, or leadership ability. It's the power that raised Christ from the dead that's able to bring life out of death. What does that mean? Well, it means, as I've often said, it works best in a cemetery. If you're living in a cemetery, if everything's dead and dull and lifeless around you, you need resurrection power. So Paul says, I want you to understand God's power towards you, it's resurrection power. Secondly, not only is it resurrection power, but it's supreme power. And that's what he goes on to say when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. He says, I want you to know something about the power that God is using for your good. It's supreme power. So no matter what you face, no matter how hard life seems to be, no matter how strong your enemies seem to be, whether it's Satan or your own flesh, and your battles with your own flesh, or the world around you and its pressures on you. Realize the power that's directed towards you is the same power that seated Jesus far above all authorities, any power that could ever come. It's a supreme, absolutely supreme power. This ain't AAA batteries, folks. This is a 10,000-volt power line that can run a city. Third, he says this power not only is 
resurrection power and supreme power. It's a directed power. Verse 22 and 23, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The same power put Jesus as head over the church. He's the authority. He's connected to the church. He runs the church. In other words, all this power is directed toward us. It's directed so that the fullness of His life might be in us. You see, we, we, He fills us. He lives through us. We are His body, Paul says. And He lives His life through us. So it's a directed power used for our good. So all might be to the praise of His glory. Do you realize what this means? It means the church, not a building, an institution, but the true people of God, believers. It's the most powerful force on earth. There is no more powerful force. Because the God of the universe, who rose, raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at the right hand, his right hand above all authority, uses all that power to make the church what it needs to be. Isn't that amazing? That's us. Paul says, man, I pray that your eyes of your heart would be enlightened so you'd get this. We need to get this. Stop living like it doesn't, we don't have any power or any strength. We're weak. No, we have the life of Christ in us and all his power available to us. Now, you may have the question, yeah, but I don't feel that power. I don't see it. How does it reel in my own life? How does that happen? So often when we think of spiritual power, we think of miracles, healings, you know, something spectacular. Well, as you read through the New Testament, where it talks about the power that's available to us, sometimes talks about miracles, healings, that does happen once in a while in the New Testament. But there's so many great passages that talk about other things. It talks about the power to preach. It talks about the power to persevere. It talks about the power to minister to others. It talks about the power to be patient and steadfast. In fact, let me read Colossians 1.11 where he says this, I want you, I pray that you may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Do you realize it takes all God's power to allow us to endure and be patient and steadfast in the face of difficulties and struggles. This power is the same power that God gives us to suffer well. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he says, we have this treasure, his life in us, in earthen vessels. We're a bunch of clay pots. So that the surpassing greatness of the power might be of him, and not of us. His life in us. As we learn to depend on Him, believe that His power is in us, step out accordingly, learn to trust Him, depend on Him, He expresses His life through us, and He gets the glory because it's His power, not ours. We're just clay pots. But He's working out His life in us. See, here I think is real power. This is Johnny Erickson Tata where she says this. 
She quotes first someone named Henry Frost who wrote, I feel it would have been nothing short of a calamity to have missed the physical suffering through which I have passed. I'm positive that I've sometimes met with God's refusal to heal when I've been most in fellowship with him. And Johnny Erickson Tata writes, and so it has been in my life, a no answer, no to her prayers for, for healing, has purged sin from my life, strengthened my commitment to him, forced me to depend on grace, bound me with other believers, produced discernment, fostered sensitivity to others, It's disciplined my mind. It's taught me to spend my time wisely. And it's widened my world beyond what I would have ever dreamed had I never had that accident in 1967 when she had a diving accident and was paralyzed. My affliction has stretched my hope, made me know Christ better, helped me long for truth, led to repentance of sin, goaded me to give thanks in times of sorrow, Increase my faith and strengthened my character. Being in this wheelchair has meant knowing him better and feeling his pleasure every day. And she ends with this. If that doesn't qualify as a miracle in your book, (laughs) then may I say it in all kindness, I prefer my book to yours. That's the power of God to change our character so even in the midst of suffering we might still trust him. He transforms us. He reveals himself through us. And we learn to delight in him no matter what happens, no matter what comes our way. And Paul says, I pray that you might know this power. You see, sometimes it's a far greater expression of God's power to not heal us physically so he might heal us spiritually. Three things Paul prays in this passage that we might know. Really know in our hearts the hope of his calling. We've been called into this new life. The riches of his inheritance. He delights in us and he's making us like Christ. Someday we'll be there. And his incredible power in our lives. If we learn to believe these and live by them, we'll more fully live out our calling as part of his story, his people, the people of God. Let's pray. Wow, Lord, this is pretty amazing what you've called us to. May you make it real to us in our lives. May we trust you, enter into our calling, depend on your power and your life, and look forward to the day when we will be with you someday and be like you. Pray in Jesus' name.